Yeah. So uh, we're in chapter 21, looking at Article 3. Father, thank you that we can gather this way on this beautiful day. Pray, Lord, you helped us as we endeavor to understand this uh, matter of worship, how we should worship you in spirit and in truth, and help us to gain some understanding through our study of the confession. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, Article 3, Article 3. So we're talking about worship in this uh, this chapter, chapter is entitled Of Religious Worship and the Sabbath Day. And Article 3 reads, Prayer with thanksgiving, being one special part of religious worship, is by God required of all men. And that it may be accepted it is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of, the, of His Spirit, according to His will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and if vocal, in a known tongue. Okay, well, why don't we dive in here. Um, it's no, notable that we're told that prayer is to be made with thanksgiving. I, uh, my early prayer life was more one of desperation. I don't know if you're the sort of person that, it, the experience that I had, but I wasn't necessarily praying because I was thankful. I was praying because I was desperate. Is, is that kind of like the way you, you started off? You know, it's like in case of emergency, break glass, pray. <laughs> that was kind of the way it was for me. I went to a tough school in uh, St. Louis, got into lots of fights. And I remember um, on my way to school praying, oh, God, help me get through this day. <laughs> uh, if I do, I will worship you and serve you all my life. Then I'd get home and just kind of hang out with my friends and do all kinds of stuff like turn everybody's water faucets on in the neighborhood to wash them all, kind of send water into the street, and we'd run around and laugh at all those people that we just played that prank on. But anyway, that was, that was, my, uh, that was my childhood. I think I was in, what, maybe fourth, uh, fifth grade at that point. But that was how I started. And uh, I kind of still do that. <laughs> Yeah, are, are you still that way? You know, like, wow, this is overwhelming. You know, it, it's like the old joke, I, I guess the only thing we can do is pray. Has it really come to that? <laughs> wow, we're really desperate now. We've got to pray. Well, um, we're told that we should pray with thanksgiving, which means what? We've already received things, right? So it's not like, we're starting off at zero, and we're like saying, oh, God, give me something, and then I'll thank you. It's like, no, you've already got everything <laughs> that's good in your life from the hand of God. So therefore, thank him. That's, that's how we start. But we don't think that way, do we? We, don't, we, just, we just don't start that way. We, kinda, we always kind of think we're at zero, and we can kind of take it from there. Like, it's sort of like, you know, when I was first converted, I was in... Uh, a foster home when I was converted. And I remember uh, going to the altar and getting saved, you know, in a revival meeting and coming back to the foster home and saying, hey, I'm saved now. Now all I need to do is never sin again and I'm on my way to heaven. Because I thought salvation was going back to zero. In other words, it wasn't as though God imputed his righteousness to me. I just had my, my slate wiped clean. 
and it was like, okay, if your slate's wiped clean, you automatically go to heaven. That was kind of, so I was at zero. So that's kind of the way we, we operate. We, we, we sort of think that that's the way it is. But there's, you know, before you're born, there's all kinds of stuff going on. You ever thought about that? Most of us don't. Most of us think that the world began when we realized <laughs> there was a world out there. <laughs> and so we're kind of at zero, and we don't owe anything to anybody that came before us, because after all, you know, they didn't exist before we did. <laughs> That's kind of the way we operate, right? So if, if, you, if you start off, though, with this sort of ability to observe, wow, there's a lot of stuff out there that I should be grateful for. Remember the Apostle Paul says, what do you have that you've not been given? What do you have that you've not been given? That's where you start. So, you know, we see that uh, in Romans, Romans chapter 1, I, you know, I go back there all the time, but so what, what Paul is saying there is that everybody knows there's a God because his invisible attributes can be perceived through the things that are seen. Isn't that a marvelous sort of irony? You can see the invisible through what is seen. You know there's a giver because you've got some gifts. You know, so... <laughs> anyway, the story came to mind that I shouldn't share. <laughs> it's funny, I'll tell you another time. But anyway, um, so that's where we are. So we, we, we are brought into this world. A lot of stuff has already been set in place, and we benefit. And on a daily basis, we receive blessings. Every breath you take, every you know, bite of food you, you receive, all that stuff you owe God for. And so you should be able to thank him um, and pray. So you start off with not the petition, but with the thanks. You start with the thanks. And that's one of the things to keep in mind when it comes to your prayers. Start with the thanks. You know, that's a a good starting point. Thanking God, praising him for all the good things you enjoy. Um, Now, the next clause is required of all men. But what if they don't want to? Doesn't matter. They're debtors. Whether they know it or want to be uh, so or not, right? So if, if we owe God for all the blessings, right, then there's some return that's appropriate to make. We don't like... Well, if he doesn't mean it, well, we just let him go. No. We press the case. Like the bank, when the bank lends you that money, and say, I don't feel like paying it back. What's the deal with this? I mean, you're violating my conscience. I don't feel a need to repay. No. That's not how it works, right? You receive, you give something back. That's the way it works. That's the way the world works. We've been brought into this world... A lot of things have been provided for us. We're debtors from the start. We don't start at zero. We start with negative. (laughs) We never dig out of it. (laughs) Everything we receive is something we've been given. Any thoughts on any of that? That's why you can get up in a secular gathering and start off with, let's say thank you to God and not have to, like, qualify it. If you're a Christian, you can thank God. You know, no. If the atheist doesn't want to do it, well, 
Now he's doubly debted. <coughs> right? He's not said thank you. His convictions that there are no, there is no God, are not based in reality. We don't cater to delusions of grandeur or self-sufficiency or any of that nonsense. We're here to press a case, make a case. Years ago, maybe I mentioned this before, but it was a really important episode. Not, not in my life, not too far from Yale, there was a place called the Overseas Ministry Study Center, and there was a guy who came to speak, and I was there for a class. And he made this point. He said, the problem that we have today is we lack apostolic confidence. What do you mean by that? Well, what he meant is, is that most Christians today stand around like a gal at the dance, hoping that someone's going to ask her to go out on the floor and have a dance with her. Ooh, I hope someone pays attention to me. Gets all prettied up, tries to make herself presentable, that kind of stuff. Um, that's, that's what you know, seeker-sensitive churches do. They try to be attractive to people who don't like God. Whereas, uh, you know, the Apostle Paul never started off his ministry in any town by taking a survey, going door to door. What are you looking for in a church? Oh, interesting. Let's see if we can make it look like Johnny Carson, okay? Right? Didn't, that's not, what we say, I've got something you need to know. I got something you need to know and you don't know it. I'm here to tell you. I'm completely confident that you need to know. This is apostolic confidence. I've got a message from God for you. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And there are some implications. You need to know these. And I'm here to inform you. You may not receive this news in the spirit that you should. I get that. You might try to kill me. (laughs) I get that. But your openness, your interest is not where we start. We start with the news. This is the news that I have to share. This is the apostolic confidence. I'm here to tell you something you don't know. So anyway, um, getting back to required of all men, I think that that all men is the thing I'm trying to underscore here. Any thoughts about that? So, okay, now everybody's supposed to pray and everybody's supposed to be grateful because everybody's received um, but there is a proper way to pray. There's an acceptable way. Um, and, it, and that's what we're told about here. So, and that it may be accepted, there's an interesting thought. I think today most people just kind of assume that God should be flattered that they're paying attention to him. I've been sitting up here your whole life, and now you finally are paying attention to me. <laughs> I'm so moved. It's so wonderful. I've loved you all these years, and now you're finally paying attention to me. That's, I think, the way we think. No, there's actually a proper way to make the approach. And that's what we're, we're being told about here, is a proper way to make the approach. Um, in other words, God is not, like, insecure and needs your attention. You need to come to him on the right terms. Uh, it is to be made in the name of the Son. Let's think about that a little bit. In the name of the Son. What does that imply? Yeah, David. We can only approach the throne because of what Christ has done. Yeah. We, don't, we don't come in our merit. There's nothing we bring. Right. Um, it's, it's all because of what Christ has done mm-hmm. that we can come to the Father. Right. Right. 
And of course, he came to make that possible for us. So it is God's grace that is behind the, uh, the coming of the Son into the world, for God so loved the world, right? So it is grace that's at work, but we, we don't come, uh, like you noted, in our own merits. Now, one of the things, sometimes I think when we think about theological language, we kind of have it kind of pigeonholed. Like, okay, this is the way this works over here, but it doesn't work like that anywhere else in the world. Actually, not the case. Think about it this way. Have you ever uh, wanted to talk to somebody, but you didn't know the person, and you thought, hmm, who do I know who knows them? Ever made that kind of sort of assessment about the situation? And then, if, if that somebody knows that somebody, is that person on good terms with that person? You know, could that guy get me or that gal get me into the presence of this person? We do this all the time. It comes very naturally, right? This is not like something that only works this way in the theological realm. It works over here, too. Now, I might, like, show up and, and give them all, you know, somebody I've never met before and give a full list of my positive qualities, my credentials, why you should listen to me. That kind of thing. Now, depending upon the person, maybe the person would be impressed or not. They still don't really know you. They just don't know if they can trust you, right? How do you know this isn't just a, you know, a charade, a lie, that kind of thing? And there needs to be some other party that says, I can attest to this person being what he says. So even in that situation, you've got that. So this is one of the things to kind of think about whenever you're you know, trying to present yourself to somebody you don't know. Don't expect people to be impressed with you just because you're impressed with yourself, <laughs> right? You know, there's, there's going to be some testing. There's going to be some sense in which, okay, maybe this person is what he says or she says, but maybe not. Let's see. We'll wait and find out. I'm not going to voice all my doubts right off the bat. That'd just be rude, but we'll see. But the son knows the father. The father knows the son. Now, of course, God knows who you are, Right? But there's a sense in which we can talk about no and no, right? When we, th- we can parse it out a little bit. So um, what I think we sometimes confuse is that knowing who we are and knowing, knowing us in a sense of approval, we're approved, is, these are two different things. So it's not like, you know, the angel of the Lord would show up at your house one day and say, what's your name? <laughs> no, that's, that's all, you know, you're known. But um, what we're talking about is favor. I, I got into this a little last week when I was talking about, you know, the Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. Did he really not know Joseph? Yes, he probably knew who Joseph was. But knowing Joseph meant favor, right? Like when Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. What does that mean? Jesus doesn't know my name? You know, no, it means you don't have his favor. You're not on proper terms. You know, not everyone who comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, right? And Jesus says, you know, depart from me, you know, worker of iniquity, I never knew you. So being, being known, it means being on the right terms with the person you know. So it's a subtle but important difference. Any thoughts on that? So Jesus is on good terms with the Father. <laughs> we, we know that. Lots of reasons we can know that. One is 
at the baptism, right? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So we've got the, the good housekeeping seal of approval right there at the beginning of the ministry. Boom, there it is. This, is. this is the guy. John the Baptist says the same thing. You're coming to me for baptism? I should be the one coming to you, right? So we've got that. And then the resurrection is the ultimate endorsement, overturning the judgments of the lower court. We condemned him, but the Father vindicates him raises him from the dead and says, he's just. You are unjust for condemning him. That's the implication. So he's on good terms, and so he says, if you, you know, ask for something in my name, it's like that. Bob sent me. You know, you know like when you say, uh, you know, when you go to this person, just say, you know, Chris sent you. And the person says, who's he? <laughs> and then you're on your own. <laughs> but you get my drift. Yeah, Mark. I think it's interesting the, the way Christ talks there in terms of you said you did this and this and this, but I never knew you. And then he gives in a counterexample um, yeah. that those who gave water, those who clothed, those who were naked, those who visited, those who were in prison, they didn't even have an idea that they had done something for Christ, and yet he's noting yeah. that you did, and you did something significant. And so you kind of have, on one hand, yeah. those who are full of themselves, right. and those who are not, <laughs> right. and are, are kind of indifferent to it. And it, you know, thinking about getting to know people, I, I think about this, this idea of um, what are you bringing to it? You know, we, I think we often think of our relationship with God is all one way. He, he holds all these things he's done for us because he has. But th those statements yeah. make it clear that that's not the case. Yeah. I had a need to, in our federal government, to reach some high-level people. So powerful attorneys, lobbyists would get me into those places. Sure. But the thing I'd always notice is that the lobbyist or the attorney, I, almost every one of those meetings would say, Oh, you know that item I've been working on, just letting you know, right. there's always a give right, right. that's happening. You never just go in. Right, right. And it, it didn't have to necessarily do with what we were doing, yeah. but he's, they're always doing do it. favors. You can't, you can't continue to go to somebody yeah. and not be providing something of benefit to them. Right. And so I think that's interesting the way Christ puts it. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, this is something that I learned in the nonprofit world when it came to grants, which is kind of interesting because the guy I'm running against is really into free money from folks up in Olympia. I'm like, there's no such thing. No such thing. We, we owe Olympia now for a number of things. And uh, did we go into that in a sort of naive way? So one of the things you do in any, like for example, when you, if you ever think about the nonprofit sector, how does it all kind of get funded? Well, often it's funded through, you know, foundations and stuff like that. Uh, it's not all, it, it, the vast majority of the, of the big NGO kind of nonprofit world is not funded by your little $5 gift to like, you know, World Vision or something like that. That's great. Don't get me wrong. They, they, they want it. But uh, it's happening in sort of these other settings. And there's always some kind of agenda. It's not like they just dangle this money out there and says, who wants it? What, what they say is, these are the conditions. These are the things we want you to do. In other words, there's always some kind of string. 
getting to your point, their strengths. But that's just, just this kind of the way it works. You know, there's no free lunch. There's always something going on. And you have to kind of think about it. Now, in terms of who do you want to be connected to, you want to be connected to God, who is righteousness. So I'm not comparing him unfavorably to the federal government. I'm comparing the federal government unfavorably to him. <laughs> but that's kind of the way it works. It's just always the way it works. There's no free, no freebies. Yeah, Gio. So at the dinner table, sometimes we have some squabbles because Karis forgets to say Jesus' name or something. So it's not, so this isn't saying it needs to be formally, like, you just need to say every prayer with Jesus' name. It's not like a yeah, I think closing thing. Like, it's not a formalism. Yeah. Like, but yeah. if it's a spiritual reality, like, what does it look like to like, approach prayer in Jesus' name if it's not just a formalism? Well, I think it's a frame of mind that uh, is part of the picture that's, that notes and a spiritual reality that uh, is uh, sort of real for the person who's praying that we know that our access to the Father is through the Son and it's in gratitude for what Christ has done. But I'm also in Christ. So you're right. Just because you forgot to tag the prayer doesn't negate its validity it's an important reminder, though, if, if, and it's something we should do. But, yeah, in the, in the, the you know, like, it's like, let's say you're in a car and you're driving and, and you almost get into an accident. And when, you, when, you, when you're feeling like you're about to hit somebody, you pray and fail to say in Jesus' name. You know, does that mean it was not God who delivered you in just a coincidence that you didn't hit that person? Or is it God really was at work? I, I think it's the second case. To your, to your point. Or in covers, like, saying it doesn't actually make it so. That's right. That's right. That's right. You can pray uh, very theologically uh, sound prayers and not be really praying in Jesus' name. That was one of the things that was sort of an interesting thing about the First, first Great Awakening is uh, there were a number of, of um, pastors who were converted, who said, I was unconverted for the first phase of my ministry. In other words, they had a, a theological education, but they, did, they didn't know the Savior the way they came to know him. They knew about him, and they would be able to, and they could pray magnificent prayers. Yeah, Um You had to propose this, see if you disagree with it, but basically that we've always, all men through all ages, when their prayers reach God are through the mediator, Christ Jesus. Yeah, I think that's right. It's only since the incarnation that his name has been exalted yeah. so that when we pray in that, we're glorifying him right. as that, that worthy mediator. Right. But that there is no other way. Man has always been at enmity with God. Right. And he was not at peace with God other than through Christ. And so there had to be a mediator who would do that, looking forward to what he was going to complete. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, when we think about the Christian faith, we can think about it kind of in two ways. One is the historic sort of way to approach it, which is, okay, there was this... Savior who appeared the first advent and ever since then we pray in his name 
Then there's the, what's referred to as kind of ontological theology, which is more like uh, kind of looking at the really big picture outside of history and saying, um, the Father transcends the creation, never enters in. Um, the persons of the Trinity that have interacted with the, the creation are the Son and the Spirit, and that's always been the way there it is. But we didn't know that. In other words, now we have a fuller understanding of how the Godhead interacts with creation. Um, if we think that the Father has entered into creation, we're essentially Mormons. We believe that, that the Creator is bound by time and space. But if the Father transcends the creation, that's... Here, here's another way to think about it. If the Father were actually to enter into creation, the whole creation would just collapse. Can't contain Him. Just blow up. So it's, the, it's through the persons of the Son and the Spirit. Irenaeus talked about the, the Son and the Spirit being the hands. Kind of, this is just a, an analogy, of course. Just kind of the hands of God interacting with created order. Yep, Dan. Kind of going back to what you were saying about your prayer being effective or not if you don't word it in the correct way or do it in the name of the Son. In James, when he's talking about the effectual further prayer of a righteous man availing much, does that mean that the effectiveness, effectiveness of your prayer is dependent upon, or can be dependent upon your righteousness or your, I mean, we're all righteous, so what does that even mean, I guess? Yeah, I think that the appropriate way to think about our righteousness is that it's all due to God's work in our lives. So in the sense that we know God, um, there's a righteousness at work in our lives. When we think about you know, Noah being righteous, you know, Abraham you know, believing God and having accounted to him as righteousness, I think there's, there's that at work. So it's already evident that God is at work in our lives. You think about the regeneration. So this is one of the things that, of course, Reformed theology is known for, is that uh, unless God regenerates us, we're not interested in the relationship with God. Except on the emergency break glass, get me out of trouble basis. <laughs> right? So there has to be some regenerative work already has occurred in our lives in order for us to be able to approach God in the right way. So, so it's not so much that um, it's a statement. I'm not saying that necessarily if your prayer is not the right amount of fervency, it's not going to be as effective. Or... Yeah, so that's one of the things. So, so has anybody here, like, uh, so in my own life, I've had a very rich prayer life, but I can't, I can't say that my prayers were more likely to be answered by the length of time I prayed. I can, if it were that easy, I'd say, okay, met the time limit. <laughs> It's going to happen, <laughs> right? It doesn't work that way. Uh, I've had prayers that have been answered that are just like, I just, three, three words, boom, and there's an answer. And, and then there have been other things I've prayed for and fasted for, and, and I don't see an answer for. Um, so I think fervency, that's a tough one in the sense that, because I think that's one of the things that like we, we almost even try to measure it, and when we're listening to somebody else, did he sound fervent? 
You know, was that a fervent sounding prayer? <laughs> oh, that's no good a prayer. He just kind of said it like normal, normal talk. God doesn't listen to normal talk. <laughs> we, I think we all kind of fall into those kinds of tendencies. Yeah, Camden. It's going along with that that James referenced about, you know, the prayers of a righteous man. And I guess to the, to the sense in which there, there is, um, gosh, I, I'm going to struggle for the, the right words on this, but if we look at like that First Peter um, verse that talks about uh, live, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers may not be hindered. Yeah. There is a sense in which somehow God is, uh, well, I, I don't know, maybe speak to that. How does, how does, the, how does the individual's um, place of, uh, of their walk with the Lord impact right. um, God's response to our prayers? Yeah, it's a tough one to sort, of, sort out. I think I affirm everything Scripture says, so don't get me wrong. <laughs> but um, I do think we have a tendency to look for ways to pull God's strings. You got to do it now because I pulled this or I pulled that. I've been nice to my wife all week, so let's get this prayer answered, God. You know, that kind of thing. We have a tendency to fall into that trap. Um, I think it's almost like we, we should be almost kind of like uh, oblivious to certain things. Just do things because they're right, not because we think we're getting some sort of special inside track to get our prayers answered. Yeah, yeah I, I was thinking of uh, Romans uh, eight twenty six, where he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, yeah. for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And I think, if, in, at least in my prayer life, and I imagine other Christians' prayer life, prayer life, sometimes things are a little bit of a burden in your life, and you mm-hmm. prayer, and, and that might be the Spirit working in us to pray about something more than we normally do. You know what I mean? Like, if you look back, at least I look back in my, my, my life, I see seasons of where I prayed a lot about something yeah. that I wasn't really sure what it was all about. And then came through that season, and then something else is laid on my heart, right. um, and it's particularly heavy on my heart. And I'm not—I don't sit here and go, "Well, I just decided to do this." It's the, maybe the everything coming together in my life, and you yeah. know what I'm saying. Yeah, you know, I think about seasons of my own life. Um, there have been periods of time where I've prayed more fervently because I felt uh, some kind of pressure, you know. So the fervency wasn't something I was working up. It was kind of like worked in by the situation. <laughs> ah, get me out of this problem. <laughs> that kind of thing, you know. Yeah, Mark. There's, there's things we can pray for and we can have 100% confidence because we, it's revealed in the Word of God that this, that this is His will or this is what He will bring to pass. And there's great comfort in that. I think a good example of the other, you know, there's many things we'll pray for that we think, you know, there's a tragedy, there's something that's terrible that's happened, somebody's dying and we're praying for them. We do not know. We have the example of Paul, who fervently, I would say, prayed that this thorn in the flesh that was afflicting him would be removed from him. But I believe what it says is, my grace is sufficient for you. And that... That wasn't the will of God, right? but it sure as heck bothered him. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Now, I want you to have that thorn, Paul. <laughs> Keeping you humble. Yeah, David. 
I also think it's the motive. What is the motive of your prayer? Is it something because you're going to get something better because of it, or is it uh, something that God answers your prayer? Others will get something better for it. Yeah, that's a, that's a good thought. Uh, I think from a you know at one level, it's certainly more praiseworthy to pray for the second, where you're concerned about more than just yourself. Uh, but does that make it necessarily unworthy when you're just praying for yourself? You, you get my, yeah, I, don't, I didn't think you thought that. God but. answers your prayers. You're more willing to tell other people that God answers your prayers. Yeah. And it, it can build up other people's faith. Yeah. Don't you pray for the same things? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really huge thing. We're encouraged. That's one of the reasons we're encouraged in Scripture to tell other people about what God's done for us so that they know that they can go to God too and get answers. Yep, David. Uh, what's your take on, uh, so the ESV, and uh, I mean, we're not proponents necessarily of the NIV, but both of those actually say the prayer of a righteous man, a person has great power, but the King James Version says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. Now that's significant translation. I'd have to go and look at the Greek. It doesn't. It's very interesting. I memorized the Greek New Testament years ago. I just thought it was so interesting why they would put that before one or the other. Because yeah. to the average fisherman layman, you're thinking, well, maybe I just need to be a little bit more righteous. But in the King James version here, it seems to be sort of I maybe I just don't have the passion or intensity that I need to. Uh, just for the simple layman, just on face value. Yeah, yeah I guess, uh, kind of get to, back to my fervency meter, you can kind of think about it like this. You know, If we think there's a fervency meter, we're going to try to get ourselves worked up to the point where we get to the nine on the scale. Now God has to listen to me because I'm really worked up about this. Is that what we're referring to? I don't think we are. I don't think anybody would say we are. But maybe we kind of fool ourselves or maybe kind of fall into that. I know I have fallen into that way of thinking. Um, I, do, I think it's, there's just kind of a simplicity to it that we maybe shouldn't work it too much. So like, you know, early on in my pastoral ministry, when someone would compliment me on a sermon, I was like, how do you respond to that? You know, oh, it was nothing. You know, kind of a false humility kind of thing, you know. Or do you just say, thanks? I, I got to the place where I just said, Thanks. And that's when people stop giving me compliments. <laughs> but anyway, you get, you get my drift. So you, become, you, you start questioning yourself too much. Yeah, Lisa. Um, well, in James, he also talks about um, your prayers are often not answered because you're asking for selfish things to spend it on your own flesh. So there may be just a, a simple connection as far as righteous men ask for righteous things. And so the prayers tend to be... Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great observation and a, and a great scripture to, to, to remember. So that's one place where we can examine ourselves. What, am I, what, what is this about? What am I really praying for? Now, uh, if I remember correctly, James says to sort of, uh, you know, sort of satisfy your lust. Now, that would be kind of the passions in the worst sense. So um, one of the things that we see in scripture is that you can evaluate your desires. Some desires are desires that God can honor and other desires God won't honor. We live in a day where people just don't evaluate the desires. It's like every desire is, is legitimate. Every desire should be satisfied. Uh, we can't sort them out. 
But we all know that's not true. Uh, there are lots of things that we all kind of are tempted uh, with. That we say that's a desire that should never be satisfied. You know, it's something wrong with me. I need to get over this. I've got to stop desiring that if I can, that kind of thing. Yeah, Naomi. Um, so if you read on, of course, it, uh, to me it seems like it kind of covers a lot of what's been said yeah. with understanding in his will. Mm -hmm. um, now, the one thing that stood out to me that I didn't see in that, and maybe one of these words covers it, is I'm thinking of 1 Thessalonians 5 where it says, Rejoice always, yeah. pray without ceasing. And I don't see where it even mentions that. Yeah, without ceasing, yeah. Yeah, I, I think well, and rejoice always. Yeah, yeah, that's another it's almost part. Almost like that should be like a prerequisite to right. That. Yeah, well, let's think a little bit about that. Um, with rejoicing, um, would that be covered by gratitude, and thanksgiving? But so here's a thought. Uh, I remember. Uh, the church that Marl and I attended in Cambridge, it was this very diverse multicultural church with hundreds of people. We had a, a good friend, his name was Marvin, and he would make us feel guilty for not being happy. Can you kind of work yourself into happiness with someone haranguing you? <laughs> What's not rejoicing? Come on! I, I kind of think there's a different approach. <laughs> Because, you know, what you end up with is this sense of, like, I'm going to fake it. Now, maybe you can fake it till you make it. You know, you've probably heard that term. Um, but maybe, maybe the other approach would be, okay, let's think about the things to be grateful for. What have, you know, what are we, what have we been given? The more we think about those things, the more we're likely to be rejoice, you know, full of joy and rejoicing. Yeah, the scripture says to dwell on those things. Dwell on these things. All the right. things that are good, righteous, holy, all those things. Don't think about all the unrighteous, ungodly. Don't, right. don't do all those things. Do all the things that are good. So what has God given you that's good? Yeah. Dwell on that. Don't yeah. think of all the things that man has done bad. Yeah. So yeah. That, yeah. fake it till you make it. I think that's what that is. Yeah. Well, I, I was thinking just fake it till you make it in the worst sense. <laughs> yeah. But he does tell me to fake it till I make it. <laughs> What's that? He does tell me to fake it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, Mark. I think one of the good examples of prayer that we sometimes miss is just those individuals who are coming to Christ with a need, be it for healing or so forth, that that's depicted for us. Just because it's in person, yeah, in the right. flesh, does not mean it's not a prayer. They're making, they're they're coming to him with a yeah. request to do something and. And his interaction with them says a lot as to, you know, an example of that would be the woman, the, the Gentile woman who's coming for her daughter. Yeah. She's asking, and he's, he basically, his response is, you know, that's not really in the will of God yeah. to be giving the yeah. food to the dogs right. here. Right. You know, it's Pretty for the children. <laughs> and has that whole interaction right. and her faith. Yeah. And I guess fervency or tenacity. Yeah. Well, this is something to think about. So, yeah, you know, Jesus tells us in different places, and in this story is the same, you know, just keep at it. There's something about that that pleases God. You think about, like, Jacob wrestling with the angel. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. 
that's pretty selfish there, Jacob. <laughs> right? No, what, what's, what's the, the response? The angel does bless him, but in a surprising way. Right? <laughs> that's a, and to this day, he walked with a limp. <laughs> or, you know, we no longer eat that tendon on the hip, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so maybe that fervency really could be con- uh, associated with uh, ask and keep on asking, seek yeah. and keep on seeking, right. knock and keep on knocking, because those are continuous uh, verbs. Yeah. There's, a, there's the great there's the great parable of the of the un, unjust judge, and the and the woman who's coming to him for satisfaction. And she just keeps showing up every day, and he just wears, she just wears him down. All right, what do you want? Go away. <laughs> that kind of thing. Now, in the course of the, you know, Jesus compares, and he said, if that's the way an unjust judge is, think about your heavenly father who's not unjust. Yeah, Brittany. Yeah, this section doesn't talk about general prayers versus yeah. specific prayers. So there's a difference between if I say, save the children of the world, versus save the children of Clark County, versus save the children in this congregation, versus naming a specific child by name. Is one prayer more righteous than the other because of gen- generality versus specificity? Yeah, well, I think that certainly when you get specific, you can see whether the prayer has been answered <laughs> you know, or not. It's sort of like, you know, when you go to a beauty pageant, and what do you, what do you know? They say, "What is your hope for the world?" World peace. Of course, everybody wants world peace. <laughs> you know, very general. But, um, but yeah, I, th- I, I don't know if I would call them righteous versus unrighteous. Maybe, um, may- maybe the specificity reflects your own heart's sort of interest in a particular person, which is a, which is a very good thing. I want this person to be blessed. So I think that that makes it a more, I guess. Uh, Noteworthy and maybe exemplary prayer. Maybe that's a good way to say it, exemplary. But I mean, I think that all of us here would agree that we don't want that unnamed child in India who's having issues that we'll never know their name. Yeah. I want that person, child, to be saved. Right. I can't name their name. I don't know their situation. I don't even know if they exist or what. But I yeah. definitely don't want them harmed. Yeah, and I don't think there's anything wrong with praying for that child that you don't know. Yeah, I think that's, that's fine and good. You know, this is another one of those. Uh, kind of funny things. Uh, who is it? Uh, is it Dickens, who uh, has a character who uh, loves humanity in general and no one in particular? You know, <laughs> have you ever come across this, these people? They're they're humanitarians, but they just don't like humans. <laughs> you know, so we can kind of retreat into the general. The thing that always is a problem is the specific person. You know, because they've got all kinds of quirks that get on your nerves. <laughs> You know, and you're that person to somebody else. <laughs> you know, but you know the general. It's not, there's nothing wrong to pray pray for gen, sort of general, like God bless our land, that kind of thing. Well, you see, Jesus' high priestly prayer specifically starts off with the disciples, yeah. and then it moves to all the, all those who would believe. Right. You know, so it is specific. It is kind of a both and. Right. I think too the thing to keep in mind here is that, that you know this chapter is addressing the worship of the of the church, so of religious worship and the Sabbath day. That's the larger framework. So as we what's being referred to here is, I I'm, I'm thinking, um, I'm happy to be wrong about this. I think it includes private prayer, but I I think that what's being addressed specifically is prayer and worship, the prayer that's being offered up by 
an elder or just people in the worship service as they're praying. You've probably been in these circles like uh, I was in the 90s. I was in some kind of, uh, what do you call it? It's a bunch of different faiths. Oh, ecumenical? Yeah, ecumenical. I was a young Christian, business people, mm-hmm. and this guy comes out and he starts praying. He was like chosen to pray. And he's like, God, Father, or mother. Okay. Or, I know what church is. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> he was all over the place. And I was looking around like, what are we doing here? You yeah. know, I've never been in a prayer like that. And I almost like got up and walked out with some business thing and had to finish it. And then I, I was out there soon after after that. But um, I think I think what I'm, I'm getting at is that, you know, if you had started off, you know, father and then left it at that, but you know, he went on these tangents, then oh, you, sure. you just don't know. Where you know where these guys where they're saying father. So I think when you put Jesus in there, you're 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 pointing right to where this is coming from. Yeah, I think that's right, and that's one of those moments where you just say, I, you know, Jesus taught me to pray, not you, um, and I'm going to do it the way He says, not the way it makes you happy or makes you comfortable or anything like that. I think I told that story about a situation where I was in, and it. so uh, when I was in Boston, there was a, a friend of mine, his church, there was a shooting man was killed, uh, it was gangland shooting in a, in a funeral. Of course, this made the front page of the Boston Globe. And whenever anything like that would happen, all of the sort of like uh, celebrity pastor types who were looking to get in the paper would just come out of the woodwork. It was just really creepy. And uh, so there was this big uh, gathering of, of pastors from all sorts of different churches. And uh, it was to kind of, we want to make a public statement kind of thing, and we're going to have a public worship service, and we're all going to be present, we're going to make a stand against you know, violence. Yeah, you know, so far, so good. Then, when it came to the matter of, okay, how is this going to actually work? Well, the lesbian gal gets up and says, we're not going to pray in the Father's name, or pray to the Father, I should say, we're not going to pray to the Father. The guy that was the host of this meeting was another friend of mine, uh, and he just got up and said, hold it, who made you Jesus? <laughs> you know, we're going to pray the way we're taught to pray our Father. And he just started praying. <laughs> anyway, the, there was no ecumenical service after that. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing you find in those, those settings. I've been in those settings so many times. Um, I just don't play those games anymore. If you want me around, fine. If you don't, fine. But if you just kind of set, you know, if you say, we're just not going to go along with anything to make everybody happy, because, you know, you're going to find yourself in a setting where you're not going to make God happy. You're not doing things scripturally. Anyway, other thoughts on that? Yep, David? In the last part of three, it says, uh, fervency, faith, love, perseverance, and if vocal in a known language. Right. Is that like a known, so I'm in India, I'm not going to pray out loud? Well, I think we're talking about tongues. <laughs> Is that the tongues that nobody knows? Or is it- I, I think that what's being referred to is uh, what you know, Paul is talking about in, in, in Corinthians where he's addressing the subject of you know, uh, prayer that is understood and the conduct of worship in a way that can be understood by people who are coming in from the outside. I'm looking at the footnotes here, and I'm not seeing it. Oh, it's uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 14. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Um, So this is, again, getting back to the stress 
or, or what I think this is addressing is public worship. <coughs> that public worship should be done, you know, performed in a known tongue. Now, there are situations where um, this becomes a problem just because we're talking about maybe half the people in the room understand one language and other people understand a different language. Um, and I think that kind of situation um, is challenging. And then the question is, is how, how should we proceed in a setting like that? Uh, there was controversy a couple years back, three or four years back at the General Assembly about a joint worship service with Koreans and English speakers and about this very thing. And uh, it was not resolved. <laughs> but uh, it's almost as though you need to have at least... Well, I, I've preached uh, in English and have been translated in different settings. I've preached in Haitian churches and Indian churches, Spanish churches. That's a remarkable kind of thing to experience. But, you know, the things I would say, I'm trusting that the translator is good <laughs> and is saying what I'm saying. I had, the most fabulous experience I'd ever had was with a Haitian uh, congregation. So this is kind of fun. So I did this re revival in a Haitian church. And I, I said to the, this is my first time ever doing it, uh, you know, in a preaching to a Haitian congregation in a setting like this. And I said, what time should, should I be there? And he said, uh, 7 o'clock. We're going to start at 7 o'clock. So I show up, and there's like two people. I'm at 7, at 7 o'clock. There's two, two ladies in the room, you know, sitting there praying. And people kind of filter in over the course of an hour. And we didn't actually get up to start until like quarter after 8. So over the course of the week, this was like a weekly thing or a daily thing. I kept showing up later and later. <laughs> and the reason I did that is because the pastor himself would show up at like 8. So by the end of the week, I was like the last one <laughs> showing up. I was having a little fun with him. But, but I had a translator who was awesome. I mean, he would match my cadence, my, my pacing, my vocal t intonations, everything. I was like, ba-doom, 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 ba-doom. We just had it going. It was like ping pong. <laughs> anyway, he was great. I, I just, I don't know Creole, so I don't know if he was actually accurate. But <laughs> Anyway, but I think, you know, the, the idea is that people understand what's going on. Um, so reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance. That's, you know, when you think about each one of those things, they can kind of take you down a different trail. So understanding, um, I think that we're talking about this in a sort of just commonsensical way. It's not like you have to understand everything that's going on, but you just have a sense that the prayer is meaningful and you, and you, and you uh, are able to understand it insofar as you can. Reverence, that's a term that we don't use much these days. Um, it's kind of fallen out of favor. Sometimes I think uh, when people, if they do bring it up, they bring it up almost like in a, in a don't be so stuffy kind of thing. You know what I'm getting at? Um, is there a way for us to recover reverence? Should we aspire to? Here we're told we should. Um, what, what is it? What does it feel like or what does it look like? Any thoughts about what it means to be reverent? Yep, Mark? We're told to worship God with reverence and in awe. Uh -huh. Yeah, so, but what do we mean by that? 
Well, I just think of an example when I was teaching at a Christian school and um, in chapel, one of the teachers got up to pray. And she said, she started her prayer with, hey God. Yeah, right. And I was like, what is this? Yeah. Oh, Lord. And, and I went to the headmaster and said, um, we cannot, right. we cannot allow this. And you were probably labeled as the stuffy teacher. <laughs> oh, Miss Marla, she's so stuffy. Just to revere, to, to admire, to honor, to love, to adore. Yeah, I think maybe this is another, maybe this part of it, over-familiarity, kind of like being overly familiar. Um, like, I, did I ever tell this story about when I did jury duty in Boston? So there was this time, I, you know, nobody wants to be in jury duty. And like in you're in Boston, you know, the jury, you know, when you have jury duty, there's like 500 people have all gotten the letter, you know, when you come to this court. And it's because there are lots of cases to be tried, right? So you're in this setting with all these different people, and, every, and nobody wants to be there, you know? Everybody's like, I've got places to be, I hope they don't pick me, that kind of thing. And there's this guy who came out who was a judge, but he looked like he was from Night Court. Remember that television show Night Court? He had sneakers on under his robe, you know? said, hey, just call me Judge Bob. And I thought at my moment, at that moment, as I'm looking at Judge Bob, I thought, uh, Bob, I don't want to be here. <laughs> um, don't try to be my friend, Bob. Um, the only reason I'm here is because if I'm not, I'm going to get fined. And if I try to leave, those guys over there with the guns are going to say, where are you going? You know, that kind of thing. That's why I'm here. Um, let's kind of just, you see this architecture, Bob? It's all intended to impress, make an impression upon me that this is serious business. We're talking about people and their future. We're talking about justice. We're talking about people who had things done to them that were wrong, and they're looking for uh, you know, some action to be taken to make things right. This is not happy time. Uh, the reason you've got that robe on, Bob, is because you've been set apart for the purpose of judging. <laughs> Yeah. Perhaps we need to start by teaching from the pulpit who God really is mm-hmm. and starting to know it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Because if we know him in his true, there's attributes of God that would put you on your face. Sure. I mean, every time that you have some theophany in Scripture, where is the person? I think that's where it needs to start. Yeah. Yeah, so they're on their knees, they're on their face, because they know. Yep, Jennifer. Well, I was just thinking what Marla said about the person that started off her prayer with hey. Would that very same person stand before, like, when Queen Elizabeth was alive, like, if she was... Oh, this is another fun story. I remember I was in a church where people would, like, come to church like they had just rolled out of bed all the time, right? And then I saw them at a, at a political event, and they were dressed up as, about as... It was like, wow, I didn't know that was possible. Where did that come from? And it said something to me. Now, I'm not saying that everybody needs to come to church looking like they did, but it said something about, okay, I know this is important. They didn't carry that same sense of importance over to Like I say, I'm not saying that you have to be, you know, dressed like you're going to see the, the president. Oh, here's, a, here's a fun one. I remember when Obama was president. President Obama, there was a big, there was a big scandal because some girls showed up with like flip flops. 
and it was like all over the news that these girls were not demonstrating the kind of uh, reverence that is uh, due to a head of state. Anyway, it's tough to think about. Yeah. One of the ways that we practice reverence that's obvious is we have a call to worship. What happens from the call to worship until the threefold amen is different than anything else that we do as a church. So it does present to people, um, certainly presented to me the first time I started yeah. coming. And, and that is not the same as in many churches. Yeah. Many churches that they're interspersed with all sorts of frivolity of different kinds and so forth that do not separate the worship of God in a reverent way. And the thing about this is worth noting is that this is all a fairly recent phenomenon. This is something that if you were to go back even 100 years ago, every theological tradition from the Pentecostals to the Episcopalians to the Roman Catholics, they would approach Sunday morning with a kind of reverence that you don't see very often anymore. Yeah, Dan. Well, I'm pretty sure that we've been part of the story. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the things that has sort of appalled Europeans is the Americanization of Europe. We, we tend to think that, uh, that we don't have as, as big an impact on the rest of the world as we actually do. Anyway, I don't mean to be stuffy, but you know, we are talking about reverence. And so reverence, I think, is an important matter, just broadly speaking, you know, revering our parents, revering public officials, revering God. Uh, now, faith, love, and perseverance, we talked about perseverance. Um, let's just, uh, we're just about at the end of our time here, but faith and love, of course, faith, um, there is the the acknowledgement that there is a God, so there's a, that dimension of faith. But I think uh, another dimension that uh, has to be remembered is trust. We're trusting that God has our best interests at, at heart and that God will do what's right. Um, and trusting God uh, as we pray, even though we may not get what, we th what we've asked for. We trust that God is doing things uh, for us and for others that we can't understand at this point because we don't have a good place to stand and see what's going on. Yeah. Uh, the centurion, when he went to ask uh, about his daughter and Jesus was going to go, he says, you don't need to go. I, I trust you. Well, I'm a servant. But I trust you. Mm -hmm. It's when you say something, I believe that what you say you will do. Right. His word says that all through. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, that's what... He's commended for. You know, Jesus says, hey, look at this guy. <laughs> you know, he's not even an Israelite, and he's making all you guys look bad. Okay. Anything else before we pray? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the help that the confession can be for us. We pray, Lord, that you'll help us to pray as we should. This is something that's a marvelous gift we take for granted, that we can pray but we want to do it in a way that uh, is uh, proper, uh, but also effective. So we pray, Lord, that you'll teach us to pray on an ongoing basis. In Jesus' name, amen.